Okay, please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. I can't, I can't smell it up here. It smells good already. Yeah, the, the food downstairs. Romans 12, uh, I'll read verses 1 through 8, but my uh, message 2 is just going to cover verses 3 through 8. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your holy word and for breathing forth the words of eternal life to us and for teaching and admonishing, instructing us. And we're so blessed to be part of your church. And we pray you'd help us to understand um, the importance of the role that each one of us plays as part of a local fellowship of believers. And we know that the church, at least in America, has really fallen on some pretty hard times, is struggling. And we pray that we would take it upon ourselves to be dedicated and devoted to exercising our gifts for the edification of your people, that Christ would receive more glory and more worship as he deserves. We ask in his name. Amen. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, but my message will cover just verses 3 through 8. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. May God bless the reading of his holy word. I saw a Ligonier Ministries question and answer session recently where they quoted statistics that said that one-fifth of all church members in our country apparently have not and are not going to return to church now that the coronavirus pandemic is over. Now, I've done sermons in the past on the necessity of the local church, the indispensability of the church, and the fact that in Scripture there is no context for Christian discipleship and the Christian life outside of membership in the local church. It's the only context God has given to us to live out our Christian faith, is to be part of a church. But this particular message is going to be about edifying one another in the church with your particular gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is the great chapter that speaks of the necessity of each part of the body in a local church. Everyone is important to that church's health and witness to the world. Every redeemed person must be a member of a local church with elders in their life. The glory of Christ suffers when his people refuse to love his bride. Indeed, when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, we're all familiar with that glorious narrative in Acts chapter 9, And Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? And for many, for the one-fifth 
of churchgoers in America who have turned their back on the Christian church and refused to go back after COVID is over, perhaps Jesus would ask them, why are you abandoning me? The Holy Spirit exhorted the divided and troubled church there at Corinth that each of its members was essential to all the others. He told them, you guys have to be together. There should be no schism in the body, he said. The members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, he says, and members individually. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 25, and 26. And the assumption behind what he says there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and in our passage in Romans 12 is this. All the body parts are at least present. They're at least there. They're at least there to be divisive with each other. (laughs) Everyone at least comes. Local church life is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. My own church experiences, who laughed over here? (laughs) I was going to say, that had to be a pastor laughing. Yeah. (laughs) Uncle church life is not easy. The church I grew up in, I mean, it had stuff that went on that was nuclear level. And my parents hung in there. You know, my parents are still members of the same church that they joined when I was seven. They've been members of the same church for 40 years. And now that they're going through really, really hard times, they have an incredible support system. People they've known, people that prayed and prayed and prayed for me all those years, they hung in there with the church. And when nuclear-level stuff happened and you'd see bloodlettings and people would leave, and I would ask my mom and dad, why, well, why, why didn't we leave? Why didn't you guys leave? And my parents would both look at me and say, our faith at no time was in those people or our pastors. It was in Christ. People get mad leave churches for all sorts of bad reasons, but if we have a biblical doctrine and understanding of the importance of the church and the importance of our place in that church, such will always be the very last option. The fact is, human beings in general, and not just Christians, have a real hard time getting along with each other. They always have. In Christ, we're all brothers and sisters, as certainly, when Paul wrote the letters of the New Testament and when the New Testament church gets off the ground there after Acts, it, it was an odd way of addressing people. Think how difficult it would be for a slave owner to address one of their slaves as their brother or their sister. How hard it would have been for Jews to refer to Gentiles or to former prostitutes as brothers and sisters. But every single member of those early local churches is referred to as a child of God, adopted into God's family. And therefore, since we all have one heavenly father, we're all part of the very same family together, always. And I want to tell you, the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. We're brothers and sisters. And if you have lots of brothers and sisters in your family, you know that brothers and sisters often have a hard time loving one another, forgiving one another, not holding grudges against each other, and sometimes just being kind to each other. It's the same with the family of God. Having a large family. Myself, I often think how different our family dynamic is when even just one of them is missing. Our relationships with one another, they're precious. They change us. Even when there's conflict and people don't get along, the Word of God calls us to love one another and to still exercise humility. We, the children of God, are one with our brothers and sisters all across the whole world, across languages, across cultures. 
We are also the members of this local church here, Bridgewell Heights. We're essential to each other. We're essential to the life of this local church in which God and his sovereign providence has placed each one of us. You and your gifts, if you're a Christian, are essential to the people around you. They need you, and you need them. There are two deadly tendencies that constantly plague local churches. One is the tendency to overvalue yourself and overvalue your gifts and self-seeking and arrogance. And secondly, to undervalue yourself and your gifts. A lot of people do that, undervalue themselves, and they don't think that they're very important to their church. It seems people have tended to go one of those two directions a lot throughout church history and even today. Paul's goal in this passage here in Romans 12 is for the members of the local churches to understand themselves and to understand their gifts and their limitations and to serve one another in the local body in humility with a sober assessment of themselves. So let's walk through the passage. Look at verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. A vitally important passage. It ought to catch our attention that after Paul's first two verses of application there in Romans 12, after 11 chapters of theology, 11 chapters of doctrine, 11 chapters describing the mercies of God, that the first virtue he encourages among every one of these Christian people is do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. And if we really understand God's unconditional electing grace, and we understand the true graciousness of salvation, how could we possibly think otherwise? Because as sinners, we find ways to do it. Why might Paul say this not only here, but in many places in the New Testament, because pride is perhaps the biggest and most powerful vice that human beings all have. It's what seems to be behind everything else foolish and evil that we do. Pride. Many a church building in our country, in our town here, is now empty, or is housing used refrigerators, or has been converted into a nightclub because of pride. It is not that there are sometimes prideful people in in a sinful way, but rather only how well we manage that and fight against it and put it to death. Sinful pride ruins local churches. Sinful pride ruins friendships, relationships, marriages, parent-child relationships. The Holy Spirit says here that every Christian must not think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. A prideful person can only be a dictator, never a true leader. A prideful man, no matter how brilliant, well-educated, articulate, and charismatic he may be, he'll be functionally useless to God if he's prideful, except perhaps to be an agent through whom God's judgment may come against others. And the mindset we are to have is the one that Paul outlined in Philippians 2, that great, the hymn to Christ, the Carmen Christi, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. See, so often in in churches, the more visible gifts are often coveted and they're sought after for the wrong reasons. 
1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14 show that people were coveting and using their gifts for the purpose of self-exaltation. People were desiring certain gifts in the church, not because those gifts suited them well or, or were the most useful for the edification of the body, but rather because those gifts were the most attractive and were the most visible. Really, people can be that diabolical in the church? Yes, absolutely. It happens. Pride's a very deep-seated, very ugly sin. And people get puffed up and others become envious and discontent. But for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, these things must not be. And notice the next part of verse 3 there. You see it? After that, we just looked at the beginning part of verse 3, the second part. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You know what? I'm going to argue what he's saying there, a measure of faith. God has given each person a certain amount of gifts. God gives each person a certain amount of gifts that he wants them to use in their local church. Anyone who thinks highly of themselves, they don't have sound judgment, we're told in Scripture. If you think too highly of yourselves, you don't have sound judgment. You don't think clearly about the world around you. Proverbs 27, 2. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth. Isn't that brilliant? Let someone else do your bragging for you. A stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs 27, 21. A man is valued by what others say of him. Normally, it's going to be the people around you and not you who would be the best authority concerning whether or not you have sound judgment. Remember the Proverbs say each will proclaim his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? When you apply for a job, what do you usually have to show? References. Why? Because the Bible's true. Every man will tell you how great they are, but what does everyone else think of them? And notice verse 3 closes with the phrase, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. If you're a Christian, you're part of the local church, he has allotted to you certain gifts. That's what he means by a measure of faith, a certain measure of giftedness that you're to bring to the table. That's what he's really addressing there. Now look at verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, like our bodies have lots of different parts to them, and all the members don't have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12 really expands that and gives a, a fuller discussion of the same issue. The differences between us in terms of who we are as people, our backgrounds, and in this passage, especially the specific talents and gifts that God gives us for use in the local church, they're not in any way an indication of disunity among us. The fact that we're real different from one another doesn't mean we're not united. It just means that everyone's different. Everyone has a certain disposition, a certain giftedness that they bring to the table to make the full body of Christ. And every part matters. Every part is vitally important to a functioning body, just like a functioning local body, the church. When I was in high school, I badly, badly, badly broke my, my left thumb, just crushed it. Had to have surgery and pins and wires and stuff put in and have it kind of reconstructed. But I had to get dressed and put button-down shirts on without a left thumb. I challenge you to give it a shot sometime. It is extraordinarily hard to do and had to learn how to use one thumb to do it and just thought, wow, what a blessing it is to have that little thumb. And the thing is, every part of the local body of Christ, when one part's missing, whether it's a little thumb or whatever, an eye, an ear, a nostril, or whatever, it hurts that church. It can't function. It can't be the body it's supposed to be then. You are important. If you're a Christian, you're part of a local church, you are important, whether you see it or not, whether you recognize it or not. 
If everyone here was called by God to do the same thing, we'd be as useful as a hand would be all by itself. And a hand can't do anything unless it's connected to a wrist and a forearm, an elbow, a shoulder, and a functioning body and brain. How different we are from one another, it ought not to put us off or scare us, but rather show us how God has designed us as people and our gifts as individuals to complement one another so that the whole local body, the whole local church here functions in a healthy manner. Listen to the way Paul explains it. Just to keep, stay there in Romans. Just listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 15. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? In other words, a person that prefers to have this gift but doesn't have it, they think, I'm not, I'm not important. No, you still are of the body. You still are a really important part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. You know, the ancient peoples of the world, they built monuments that have been standing, in some cases, for more than 40 centuries and some of those ancient buildings and monuments are made of multi-ton stones that are so perfectly and precisely cut that you can't fit a single human hair between them. And to this day, they're, they're still standing there together in exacting mathematical precision. I want you to think of every local church as a building that God has personally custom-fashioned each stone with, its, with the life experiences and everything about them that they bring to the table so that it all fits together into this glorious building. You know, one of the books I recommended back there, The Glorious Body of Christ by R.B. Kuyper. It's one of the best books you could ever read. It's one of the most encouraging books you could ever read about the importance of the local Christian church and being part of it and why that's such an important part of, of the life of every Christian. So think of every church as a building that God constructed out of the stones that he shapes and carves and fashions. In fact, Peter describes the church as a, a building made up of living stones and we're all those living stones fit together by God. If you're a member of this local church, you are one of those stones. You've been chipped away at by God through your life experiences and through the, the blessings and the hardships, the, the days of, of blessings and, tri and trials as well, and shaped just right so that you fit perfectly in with the other stones in that local building, that local body of believers. So I say to you, don't devalue your gifts. And don't devalue your past and your life experiences and everything about you that you bring to the table. Don't, don't chafe at the providence of God. Don't think that you know better the way God should have formed you or made you. Each of us is essential to one another, just as our own body parts are to us. God uses the illustration, hand, a hand saying to the foot, I don't need you. And I saying to the ears, we don't need you. What's the point? Hands do need feet. And feet do need hands. Just as much as eyes need ears and ears need eyes. And a body missing those parts is unhealthy. It can't function. It's going to fall in a ditch. It's going to run into stuff. It's not going to hear things. And the same is precisely true of the local church that you are part of. That church needs you. Today with uh, everybody not coming to church anymore, I guess, the hand might want to try to say to the foot, I don't need you, but the foot never shows up at church, so it can't. Verse 6, you see it? Assuming all the body parts are there, to, to either value or devalue each other, but 
since we have gifts, you hear that? You have a gift. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Each of us is to exercise them accordingly. This is why I take to each one a measure of faith. It's really referring to that person's gifts. If you look at the rest of the passage, that's really what it's talking. Since we have gifts, we all have a measure of faith. We all have a a measure of a gift that God gave to us for use in the body of Christ. We have to exercise that gift accordingly. Our faith is itself a gift of God, and the word faith and the phrase a measure of faith is is a a syntactical device called a metonym. It's a part taken for the whole. Faith is given to us by God, but our giftedness and everything that we are, the gift we bring to the table, that is what is being addressed here. Faith in this context is all that God has given to us, our our gifts, etc. We all have a measure of gifts. We all have a measure of faith given to us by God. We have gifts. You see at the beginning of verse 6 there? Since we have gifts. You can put yourself in there. Since I have gifts that God gave me for use in my church, I need to exercise those gifts accordingly. It's very reminiscent of the parable of the talents. Remember the parable of the talents that Jesus told in Matthew 25? 14, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, listen, to each according to his own ability. God's not going to ask you to do or be anything that he has not given you the ability to be and do. And that ought to encourage us. Our gifts are according to the grace given to us. And they're given to us according to the ability of God's sovereign decree and providence towards us. In perfect wisdom, he fashioned us the way that he did for our churches. Romans 12, 6 says, we have gifts that differ. And we have to value everyone's gifts, not just our own. And 1 Corinthians 12 exhorts us to see all of our brothers and sisters as essential. And I would encourage you, in any given church, there are people all the time who feel like they're outsiders. They will always feel like they're outsiders. I just don't feel like I really am that much a part of, of this fellowship. Maybe gone for years and years and still feel like a, an outsider. Remember the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. You may think you're an outsider. I, I'm not really part of the, of the show here. You are necessary. You're essential. It's very important that everyone in a local church consider, how can we exercise our gifts? Not all gifts will be visibly exercised before the congregation. In fact, most of the service in the local church is done behind the scenes. It's only seen by a very few, usually. No trumpets, please. People just like to do stuff for each other. No matter what our gifts may be, we're commanded here to exercise those gifts. We're commanded to. And I know people are going, well, how am I supposed to know which ones are mine? What what is my gift? What is my gift? I'll go ahead and skip to the end and just give you the answer. Because I can. people are like, I don't even know which one of these things is mine. If you go to lots of stuff in your church and you attend all the worship services and you hang out with the people there and you go to the events, you'll figure it out. Okay? We need to have you here more often. <laughs> he knows what I mean. Okay. Each according to his own ability. Now, here, now look at the list here. In the second half of verse 6 and following, here's, here's the list. And you're going to fit into one of these. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. Now, we must not allow the term prophecy here to refer only to someone who, who foretells the future or anything like that. 
The fact is, biblically, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the term prophet applied to all classes of religious teachers. In his interactions with Abimelech, listen to how God talks about Abraham. Genesis 27, Therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet. Why was Abraham described as, as a prophet? Well, not because he foretold the future or made prophecies about the future, but because he told forth the word of God. And he will pray for you and you will live. Moses is described uh, as a prophet and prophesied about the coming prophet, the Lord Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, 18, <clears throat> I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. Anyone that speaks forth God's word in the place of God to the people of God is a prophet and can have that gift of prophecy here. So it's not a miraculous gift. Aaron was said to be Moses' prophet to Pharaoh, meaning what? Aaron was the one who spoke in behalf of God after Moses gave him the words from God, and he functioned as a prophet in that sense, because he foretold God's word. God told the prophet Jeremiah, you shall be as my mouth. You see the point there? Anyone who speaks forth the word of God, anyone who was a spokesperson for God, including teachers, were considered to be prophets in that sense. All, all that they spoke in God's name was prophecy in that sense. And we tend to limit prophecy to foretelling the future, but that's really a misuse of the biblical term. Back in Romans 12, 6, if our gift is prophecy, which is to say preaching and teaching, that's really what he's talking about there, then we must exercise that gift according to our proportion of that gift. That is to say, a person with this gift of being able to speak forth the word of God and teach the word of God, they should exercise it a lot, frequently and with passion. The church needs you to use that gift. People need to learn God's word from your use of that gift that God gave to you. Now, the calling to be a preacher of the gospel, it's a very serious thing, and it's not one to be taken lightly. And there was an elderly man who befriended uh, Amy and me uh, before we had children, very shortly after we got married, back in 1997, and uh, we used to go visit him. He was just a wonderful Christian man, and he just liked to have hospitality, and he would uh, cook for us, and we would just sit and talk to him, and he would tell us stories about his life and everything. Just a wonderful guy, and he gave me some very good advice. And when he learned that I felt a sense of inward calling to the ministry, he said to me, Patrick, make sure it's a calling and not an itch. And he paused and looked at me to see if I was paying attention, as if he was waiting for me to ask him, what do you, what do you mean by an itch? He said, some men are called by God to the ministry to preach. Others have an itch that they think is a calling. The ones with an itch never last because all they really wanted was attention anyway. And I've reflected on that a lot over the years, an itch versus a calling. And I used to pray, Lord, help me see if, if all I really have is an itch. You get his point, though? It's a very good point. Some men feel called to preach because they really like to hear themselves talk. And they like people listening to them. And they think everyone should be quiet and listen to them all the time. That's not a calling. That's an itch. A long time ago, an old friend from high school I hadn't talked to in more than 20 years, a guy I grew up with who came to know Christ and found out I was a pastor, and he felt a, a sense of calling to the ministry and sent me this email, and I, I saw a video of him sharing his testimony, incredible story, and he asked me, how did you, how did you know that you were called to pastoral ministry, to the, the pulpit ministry? And this is what I wrote to him, I actually cut and pasted it from the email. I said, well, the first step in terms of understanding that I ought to go into the ministry was being very involved in my local church where I was a member, never missing any services or activities. Be involved with the people there. Love those people. I felt a sense of inward calling, but felt like I was far too evil and stupid to follow it. 
It was the congregation that I was part of that encouraged me to pursue seminary, to teach Sunday school, to become an elder. So the calling to the ministry is always a two-pronged event. The man needs to have a sense of inward calling from God. He loves to study the Bible. He loves his local church. If he's married, he loves his wife. If he has children, he loves his children. And he's good at teaching and influencing people for the gospel of Christ around him. If that inward calling is confirmed by the people in his local church, then I say, go for it. Go to seminary. Do seminary online. Get a, get a divinity degree. Continue being active in your local church, though, and then go for ordination and hopefully a calling to be a pastor of a congregation. So the key to everything is, first and foremost, your local church and your involvement in it. Are you there every Sunday for its services? Do you attend the church's activities? Do you have a burden for your local church and for the lost souls all around you? Those are the key elements in calling to pastoral ministry. You have to love your church first. Love it through thick and thin. The people in that church, they will confirm your calling by encouraging you to pursue ministry. I know for my part, I would not have pursued becoming a pastor unless a lot of people in my church had encouraged me to do so, end quote. So if prophecy, then use that gift. If the proclamation of God's word is what you're passionate about, it's where your heart is, and God's people confirm that ability in your local church, then go for it with all your heart and exercise that gift. And by the way, this is just one of the reasons that we often recruit men from our church to do teaching duties for uh, Sunday school. Okay, we, we do that because we want to uncover who, who has these gifts, who among us can do this. It's not just because elders want to get out of doing that work. It's about discovering who has that gift among us. Sometimes men are able to teach and they don't even realize it. And when, when they do it and they, they do it well, they want to develop that gift and exercise it more. So that's verse 6. So look at verse 7. Is service in his serving. So here's another gift. This is a specific, unique, supernaturally given gift of God to some people in the church. It's an, it's an essential gift. The term service there in Greek is the word diakonia and would refer primarily to the work of deacons, but it also includes just service in general, any kind of service. In fact, in many places, the term diakonia is translated as minister. And the very apostles of Jesus Christ themselves refer to themselves as diakonos, as deacons, as servants, ministers. So there is a general sense of service, but also the official diaconal sense of service. And the term here likely refers to both, but primarily to deacons, since those who prophesy are mentioned first, there, that would be teaching elders. They do a lot of prophesying and that they teach the word of God. And deacons are the ones that do a lot of the hands-on service that we've seen in Acts chapter 6 and so on. But whatever your gifts are, exercise them in your church. If it's prophesying, then prophesy. If it's service, then serve people. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, another text that's important here. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And while we do have prophets today in the ordinary sense of the prophetic ministry, the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, we no longer have prophets in the extraordinary sense. Any teaching elder in the church who preaches is prophesying and that they're speaking for God to the people of God. But there was also an extraordinary prophetic office during the apostolic age, which ceased 
with the office of apostle. And the key to understanding the difference between the extraordinary offices that have ceased, apostle and prophet in that sense, and the ordinary offices, teaching, ruling elders, deacons, evangelists, is that the extraordinary offices were revelatory in what they taught. They spoke forth word, the word of God before it was fully inscripturated. They were enlightened and guided by God to teach the gospel and to teach what would later in its entirety be committed to the written word of God. But whatever gift you have, whether it's one of service, if you have the gift of prophecy, that is, to be a teacher, a preacher of God's word, you must exercise that in the church. You must exercise that in the church. Look at verse 8. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation. I want to argue here that really the verb there means to encourage. To encourage. Okay? There, there's not another church office called exhorters. Okay? It's not like people say, hi, I have the gift of exhortation, so I'm going to exhort you. The word translated exhort there means to invite, to exhort, uh, to comfort, to encourage. For some, this is what they're really great at. The, the lexicon of the Greek New Testament defines the, the specific usage in Romans 12.8 as encourage. If encouraging is your gift, then exercise encouraging others in the church. I think that's one of the main senses there. Encourage people. And some people are just great at that. They're great at encouraging. And some people are not. Sometimes you see a letter from someone, and you see who it's from, and you can't wait to open it, because you know this is a person with the gift of encouragement. And sometimes you see a letter from someone, and you see their name, and you want to use it to start a bonfire. And by the way, discouragement is not a spiritual gift. Some people are always looking for ways to build up and encourage others around them. It's just what they're great at, and they always do it. All of us know people that have that gift, and make no mistake about it, dear congregation, it's a supernatural ability. If you're good at that, you have any idea? I mean, how many times does it say in the Proverbs that a kind word, how, how helpful it is to people, to say something nice to people? It's a supernatural gift that some people really do have. I myself have been the beneficiary of people with the, the gift of, of encouragement and, and the fake gift of discouragement. One kind word, encouraging thought, can be such a great help to someone, especially if you know that, that encouraging person, you know that they're being sincere, you know their heart, you know they're not flattering you. You all know the difference between flattery and encouragement, right? Okay, flattery is attractive speech intended to set you up for a fall. Encouragement is a divine gift that God gives to people to empower and to stir up the use of other people's gifts. Doesn't that not show how gracious God is to his church? He knows we're going to become discouraged. He knows we're going to be getting close to cracking sometimes. And so one of the gifts he gives is to encourage others to use their gifts. He thinks of everything. That's how great God is. He thinks of everything. A special gift of encouraging others to fan the flame of them using their own gifts in the church. Lest we become discouraged. I look at the next part of verse 8 there. There's a long list here. He who gives with liberality. <clears throat> First Timothy six seventeen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God <clears throat> who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. So the person who gives, the person who has wealth, let them give liberally, freely. The next one, he who leads with diligence. This refers again primarily to the elders, the ones that rule over the local church. It must be done 
conscientiously and with a sense of ownership. We have to do this. We have to lead. God expects us to do that. We've got to step up and lead now. And we have to do it right. We have to do the hard things when we have to. Next one, you see it? He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Those who give are a blessing to those in need and those who have less. The ones who have the gift of mercy are those who can hold the hands of the sick people and the afflicted and be a warm and comforting presence to them, to those that suffer. They're good at weeping with those who weep. They have a heart for everybody. They hear a prayer request and they hear about something horrible that's going on in a person's life and their heart breaks for that person. That's supernatural. And it's essential. People need that from others. Your heart breaks for something you see on a prayer request? Call that person. Go Show up at that person's house. I saw this prayer request. That just shatters my heart for you. And go weep with that person. Go pray for them. Just be there. You don't even have to say anything. Just that really affected me. I want you to know I'm thinking about you. I love you. Some people have very soft hearts of compassion for the people all around them, especially the sick and the infirm, the suffering, those who are heartbroken. If that's your gift, the Holy Spirit says exercise it diligently. At any given moment, in every local church, there are people who are heartsick, who are heartbroken about a whole array of things, spoken and unspoken, known and unknown. You sense someone is carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, you see a look on someone's face, go ask them. Go say something to them. You know, you have the look of someone that with much on their mind. Is, is something wrong? That's a supernatural gift. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. The need will always be there for that. So that's the end of, of the verse there. Just a few words of exhortation and closing. Each particular local church, just like the church there in Rome that Paul wrote his letter to, they had uniquely gifted people who were essential to the life of that church. And churches often suffer greatly because people aren't committed enough to the life of their church in order to discover their gifts to put them in use. And when people say, I, don't, I have no idea which, which one of these gifts and these gift lists is, is mine, if you're there, if you're with the people of God, if you go to stuff, if you get out of your comfort zone and come out of your turtle shell and stop being an introvert and don't wear that label and try to get to know people, you'll find out what your gifts are. It'll be plain and obvious what you're good at. And it'll be something that comes naturally to you because it's supernaturally given by God. It'll be something that you want to, to use in the church and something that others will be blessed by you using it in the church. And you will love to do it. You will love to do it. And so many people are, are robbing themselves of, of a sense of closeness to Christian people and a, a sense of well-being in their life because they are not part of the life of their church. If you're thinking, that all sounds fine, but... I just don't know what my gifts are. It's hard, if not impossible, to discover them if you're not around the people in your church. Sometimes it can take a long time to discover your gifts. And other times, if there's difficult or divisive people in a local church, it can be difficult to exercise your gifts. Always remember church history. Church history is a healing thing to study. Two of the most gifted, kind-hearted, gracious ministers that God ever gave his church we're both fired. John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards. Both of them got fired. Sometimes for pastors, people don't want sound doctrine to be preached. Sometimes they don't like it. Sometimes sound teachers are trying to teach people who cannot endure sound doctrine. We're warned about that in Scripture. 2 Timothy 4, 1-5 explains it clearly. 
Sometimes there's problems, there's issues that the courts of the church are supposed to get involved with and deal with via church discipline. That's what leading with diligence is talking about. And when denominations and churches will not do that and will not do the hard thing and deal with someone, the church suffers. If everyone together is serious about the use of their God-given, supernaturally given gifts, all will be well in the local church. It'll be healthy. It'll glorify Christ. You know, that word that's translated gifts in Romans 12, 6 is the word charismata. It's where we get the so-called charismatic movement. And sadly, they focus on gifts that don't exist anymore in the church instead of the ordinary gifts that they're missing out on. My final word to you is to think about the gifts in this passage and consider which ones might be yours. There's not a single member of a local church that does not have a gift. Remember what it says, since we have gifts, since we have gifts, let's exercise them diligently. It may be a very behind-the-scenes kind of gift that you have, but in a way, those gifts are even more glorious to God. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 6, when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You know, on the day of judgment, it's not going to be the celebrities at the top that were on the stages. I think the favorites of heaven are going to be people we've never heard of. Who are, who are these people? And Jesus also said, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. In God's providence, years ago, I was preaching that passage on fasting during Lent. So I saw people with, you know, the black crosses on their head. Did a little searching, did a little reading in the Oxford History of Christian Worship, read some articles about Lent, <laughs> and looking at everything in the Bible about, about fasting, I thought, Lent is literally like someone sat down and said, how can we deny everything the Bible says about fasting by a tradition? Everybody will know, and we can give up things like chocolate for 40 days. That's not fasting. And if you got a black cross on your forehead, you're announcing it to the world. You already have your reward in full. God loves the stuff that nobody knows about but him. It's glorious in the sight of God. That which is highly esteemed to men is an abomination to him, he says. It seems that Jesus especially likes that, the secret acts of service, because they're the most sincere. There's not even going to be a temptation to get glory for oneself when those things are done, because nobody can see you. I heard a story once about a church that was dying. It had been a tight-knit group of people for a long time, but it had stagnated for years, and it was dwindling away. They hadn't seen many new folks coming in. The, The heads were getting grayer, and more funerals were happening. There were several elderly members who, because of health, they weren't able to attend church for many years. And then out of the blue, the same pastor who'd been there faithfully preaching the word, faithfully preaching the doctrines of his confession, preaching the gospel as clearly as he possibly could, all of a sudden the church starts to thrive again and there's spiritual awakening in the community and in the midst and the church begins to grow and grow and people are repenting and coming to Christ and suddenly the sanctuary was full again. And everyone who had been there all along kept wondering, what happened? And years later, after one of the more elderly shut-ins had died, a 
family member of that saint was looking through journals that that person had kept when they were dying of something. And they read during those days of spiritual awakening, these entries, entry after entry after entry. Spent the day fasting and begging God to renew our church. Spent the night in prayer for our pastor and for revival to take place. Spent the whole day in prayer for the conversion of our communities and neighborhoods. Spent the day in prayer that our church would see conversions and would fill up again. Spent the day praying that people would once again long to keep the Sabbath day holy. And on and on. You think that person was a favorite of heaven when they got there? And nobody knew about them? To anyone that thinks they don't have a gift, I ask you, can you pray? Love your church. Pray for your church. Use your gifts in the church. Overcome your inhibitions and your shyness and just try to get to know people in your church. Just a few points of application. Attend both services if your church still has an evening service. The church I grew up in had 700 to 900 members. And my mother told me they had an evening service long ago. And I don't even remember it. And I said, why'd they stop? They said, they couldn't get people there for anything. Have seven, 800 people on a Sunday morning and nobody would come on Sunday night. It's a very helpful way to bookend the Sabbath. Secondly, when sin or controversy happens, I want to encourage you, let your first thoughts be not of vengeance, but of the glory of God, the glory of Christ. We represent him first. And therefore, let your conduct, your thoughts, your motives, remember his glory first. What would the world think? We, we saw that in, in Carl's sermon. The world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If the world could have an audience, a window into a church, when a controversy happens, when something hard happens, what would they think of our Lord's ability to change, humble, and sanctify people if they could see it? If the world could watch a controversy, how it's handled by everyone involved in it, what would they think? Is their God real or not? If we keep Christ first, our sinful pride will not allow us to react in anger or to lash out or to be quick to speak. Also remember, if you're older, if you're older and you're part of this church, the eyes of every younger person in here are always watching you. Everyone here is a disciple and a disciple maker, whether you want to be or not. You have people that watch you, and they're learning from you. Well, he's okay with this. I guess I can be too. Well, he has this standard. She has this standard. Set a good example for the people that look up to you. The rising generation needs, needs godly churchmen, and it doesn't have very many. Thirdly, work to get to know the people at your church. People often complain, especially when they first graduate from high school. You know how I know that? Because I did too. I just don't connect with anyone in my church. You know why I didn't connect with anyone in my church? Because I made no effort to, to do so. And also, I know this is radical to consider. I know this is one of the most radical things you could ever think about. Okay, you ready? This is going to be one of the most crazy things you're ever going to hear for the rest of your life. Human beings that aren't the same age as you are real human beings. And you can actually be friends with them and can get to know them. That was one of my problems. All I ever wanted was a peer group. Older, younger people, it's like they didn't exist. Fourthly, when your church has activities, go to them if you can. It's not just the church today, but the whole world is so isolated from one another. 
It's so hard to really know anybody these days. You, you drive these tin coffins to, to work and then sit in a drywall enclosure or a cube and get in your tin coffin and go back home and sit in another drywall enclosure. Nobody knows anybody. And by the way, Facebook friends, those aren't real friends. And people are using na- names of apps now. I've never even heard of them. I don't even know what they're, what they're talking about now. It's hard to know people these days. There's fellowship events. Go to them. So many people, we have fellowship meals on the first Sunday of every month, and people go out the door, and they just get out, go down the stairs, and they're gone. I'm like, yeah, it is harder to sit across from someone and try to strike up a conversation with them and, and to do that. That's hard, but we're supposed to do hard things. Push yourself. And then finally, pray for your pastor. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. Pray for your church's marriages. And pray for its covenant children. Pray for Christ's church throughout the world that the glory of Christ would shine through it. So if you're wondering, what are my gifts? Look, look at that passage. It's such a small block of text. Romans 12, 3 through 8. Look at those things and be a part of your church and it'll be obvious to you. God will show you what he supernaturally called and gifted you to do. Let's close in prayer. Our God in heaven, it's such a blessing to be part of your church. You have been so good to us and Lord, I I bless your name for the precious, wonderful Christian people that had every single one of these gifts listed here that benefited me. Even when I had very little I wanted to do with with the church, these people used their gifts to help me and to encourage me and to help me come to know you. Help us, Lord, to be patient with one another, to love one another, and to recognize the word of God says, since we have gifts— Let us exercise them with diligence. And we pray that we would do that in 